Um, it's interesting that you're um, pointing to this sort of uh, biological or material layer as the source of the meaning crisis where uh, we're sort of, we sort of can't move because we can't, we can't act because we're, um, we feel ourselves pulled by so many different forces um, and we don't feel this sense of control. I've thought some, something like the reverse where we've become so analytical and so objective and so scientific that we've lost our ability to act. We've abstracted ourselves out of existence, which is in a way saying the same thing, but from a different angle, I, in a way. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I would take that as the as one of the principal examples of this two layer, this 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 split image, and it's 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 the more powerful version of it because it's it's unavail it's unavoidable it's ineluctable as a as as in some sense true, and that is that we see all of our experience as the manifestation of some mm. unseen level of of materiality, um, you know. Uh, I just plugged myself. Out. I, I made one video in the vein of of Paul Vanderclay, and I, I, uh, I, it was on this this topic. So if you were interested in going to look at it, I don't know how well it turned out, but anyway, the idea is that that that's that that is the um, that is the kind of scientific view of this. This there's a manifest image. There's the phenomenal experience that's on the surface. And then there's this scientific image, which is really a, a realm that claims itself to be empirical, which of course it is, and yet we don't really have any access to it. We can't see molecules, you know, we can't, we can't really actually have a, uh, an empirical interaction with them. And yet that's what explains our experience. And in that it explains our experience, it kind of demands that we accept its ontology. That is to say, ontology uh, follows or entails uh, excuse me, explanation entails ontology. And so then we're sitting there with, well, what am I then? You know, and what I am is Sam Harris's, you know, the illusion, the self is an illusion and all I really am is neurotransmitters and all of that. And, and, and that's a kind of setup for a kind of deep alienation that, that getting out of is difficult because it turns out the explanations are correct so, so that there has to be uh, something, um, something that allows us to jump that shark, and um, and that's the dilemma. Because as I said before, we emerge into a given, we emerge into a set of of presuppositions that are our intuitions, and that materialistic view that I just described is part of that. And I kind of believe that it is inherited by kind of all of us even if we dissent from it even if we feel like we need to run away from it or create communities separate from it we're always reacting to it we're always we're always defining ourselves in re in relation to it and so it, it is that that is is the kind of i think at the center at least of one of the versions of the modern alienation that i think is uh the, the problematic of our age let's say um, here's a quote from Kierkegaard on science. Um, almost, it's a bit of a long quote, so bear with me. Um, almost everything that nowadays, flourish, nowadays flourishes most conspicuously under the name of science, especially as natural science, is not really science, but curiosity. 
In the end, all corruption will come about as a consequence of the natural sciences. But such a scientific method um, becomes especially danger, dangerous and pernicious when it would enroach also upon the sphere of the spirit. Let it deal with plants and animals and stars in that way. But to deal with the human spirit in that way is blasphemy, which only weakens ethical and religious passion. Even the act of eating is more reasonable than, this, than the speculating with a microscope upon the functions of digestion. A dreadful sophistry spreads microscopically and telescopically into tomes, and yet, in its last resort, produces nothing qualitatively understood. Though it does, to be sure, cheat men out of the simple, profound, passionate wonder which gives impetus to the ethical. The only thing certain is the ethical religious. That was perfect. I picked that same quote out. That is exactly what I was talking about. And I think this book is, is working on that very notion in, in a lot of different levels. Where does it come from? I, I, I was trying to find that myself. Wasn't, that's not from Sickness Unto Death? I, I got it from the introduction from Concluding Unscientific Postscript. Uh, but it was, but it was um, quoted for somewhere up, from somewhere else. Uh, there are pieces of that. There are pieces of that in Sickness Unto Death, but, mm. but maybe, maybe different wording. So you might have a different quote, but I like that quote a lot. That's exactly what I was trying to uh, express there. What is he getting at when he says, um, it's not, it's not um, what does he say? It's not science, but curiosity. Not really science, but curiosity. So I, wanna, I don't want to do the etymological thing, but uh, using <laughs> curio from curiosity, um, I would say what Kierkegaard is describing is a bad use of icons. The scientific microscope is an icon. You look through reality, no, you look at reality through an icon, and that icon has to be, happens to be an, an, a sort of optical arrangement of parts instead of a two-dimensional painting. The microscope is in that way, under the concept of icon. And what that veneration of that icon produces is what he calls a tome of sophistry, of so little bite-sized minutia. Absolutely. Because that's all that icon, as you educate yourself with that icon, as you are disciplined by that icon, that is what kind of character formation you will get out of it the sort right. of person that produces those things with your life. So it is inherently moral and ethical, the choosing of our icons. Mm. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, one of the things that I think you can see in the modern age is, the, is just the retelling of, a, of the, one of the oldest philosophical dilemmas, and that's between part and whole. And before the modern era, there was a, there was a negotiation or a back and forth between part and whole. They seemed to assume or, or entail each other. And maybe people were, you know, were, were biasing one way or the other or using a descriptive language that biases one or the other. But in the end, part and whole were always in play. And in the modern world, we went to an inductive emphasis and ultimately we split the world into parts and wholes and then ultimately had our hierarchy of, of being promote the part, promote, uh, promote the microscopic, to promote the element rather than the whole. And we had a hierarchy then that demoted the, our ability 
to kind of feel the substantiality of integration, since the substantiality of the whole. And, and, and that um, isn't inherent in simply looking at things as having complexity and having parts. You don't have to give up on the wholeness simply to, through an exercise for a certain purpose, look at the complexity and get from that look of the complexity what you need which is a kind of understanding and ability to manipulate or do things. But that does not necessarily mean you need to throw out the integrated whole. I mean, Sam Harris gives this, this two-minute talk about how he says, look, the self is an illusion. It, it's made up of neurotransmitters and activities in this part of the brain, brain interacting with that part of the brain. That means that the self is illusion. Well, why does he come to that conclusion? I mean, why doesn't he say something like, well, look, it's, it's neurotransmitters and there's parts of the brain doing this and that and the other. And then there's the self and the self is a whole and it's a unity. And we believe in that as well. <laughs> there's nothing required that he makes that move of evoking the notion of illusion. The illusion is a deflationary term that just tells his ontology, ontological hierarchy, his hierarchy of being. It's, it's interesting. Um, you, uh, Lost my train of thought. You said something about subjectivity. Um, well, it's interesting that Kierkegaard ends this quote with saying the only thing certain is the ethical, religious. Um, oh, I, w I was going to connect this to what you said about how counterintuitive the the scientific worldview actually is. Um, but I think we find it so powerful because of the fact that it is powerful. It, it affords us so much control and technology that we can't, <laughs> we can't deny the results. But I think what Kierkegaard is getting at is that what's closest to us, what's the most certain, what's the most real is actually our subjective self engagement with the world it's the world of experience that is actually the most real um and the scientific worldview is in a sense less real i guess um i'm glad you said that julian because i'm i think i'm there with you in spirit but not in letter so let me push back <laughs> good because it sounds to me like you rehearsed descartes argument Oh, uh, indubitable, indubitable certainty is what we should seek for. Clear and, and distinct, clear and distinct. Yeah, we want a clear and distinct idea. We don't want some vague notion because that's, that's in the realm of approximations. So how do we get there? We get there through using the self, using the subject as that thing which we cannot doubt. We cannot doubt ourselves. But, but that started modernity. <laughs> that started the problem. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. it's, um, and so, so where uh, I really profoundly agree with Dr. Field is when you made the point that there is no necessary separation, no necessary ontological separation between the parts and the whole. There is distinction there, but it doesn't have to come with an ontological separation. 
And this is where I want to connect that with. Oh, Julian, you got to go? <laughs> Five minutes or so. Sorry. Okay. Um, this is where I want to go and connect to presuppositionalism. Again. <laughs> against the indubitable certainty argument made by a rationalist. Because presupposition doesn't have to presuppose rationalism. And it doesn't even have to presuppose um, subjective certainty. I hate the word and presupposition. So, and so with presupposition, we don't even have to start with the subject. We don't have to. Theology could be something we start with. We could start with, for example, the Trinity. We could start with a reality that is outside of our conception, awareness, perception, and language. And then those things could flow from that presupposition. Yeah. Whereas Descartes was saying proper order begins with a self capable of rationality that can doubt appearances. Um, I think, um, yeah, this is something Kierkegaard does in um, either fragments or uh, Johannes Climacus, where he has this line of, um, doubt it says something like um, things began with faith um, but then were overcome by doubt and now the only way to get to get beyond doubt is through faith uh, I think he yeah he's an interesting idea there because the um, the church the church fathers, I don't remember which one, it was either St. Basil, St. Gregory, or um, St. Maximus, they, they did a lot of work in what the Trinity entails for logic. So when we say that God is one, but he has these relationships, how are we to conceive that? What is the Father, Son, Spirit ontologically? Is it something we project onto the external? Or is it something we are given by faith to know? Um, St. Maximus said the latter. And what he said, and this is why I so profoundly agree with you, Dr. Field, about the part and the whole not being necessarily separate, is this ultimately comes back to praise of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct. But there is no division or composition assumed in God's essence. Otherwise, there would be three gods there, not one. Otherwise, there would be one God there under three aspects, but not three real persons with real distinction. And so, theologically, in the Orthodox view, there isn't an assumption of ontological separation of the parts in the whole from the very beginning. Yeah. And I would emphasize one of the points that I want to make there, separation, you're using it in the same way, but I would, I would then put that hierarchy notion of elevating one half over the other. That is to say, to give more realness to, let's say, the part, to, to say the part is, is where you're going to find the substantial reality and the whole is going to merely be a manifestation of the parts. Uh, that kind of statement, uh, as opposed, you, you know, which, which is what I think you mean by separation there. Actually, I don't. I don't. No. I, so when I, when I say no division or composition, I mean 
they're really distinct, but they're not really, one doesn't have more reality than the other. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Okay. Is, okay. is that when we're, when we're saying we don't need to do the separation, what I'm kind of just adding on to that is what we don't need to do is have the hierarchy set up. There's, there's no necess, necessary move requiring us to demote the whole as having less substantiality than the part. So absolutely.